Hooray Run Podcast, episode 33. I'm your host, James Jimmer Rogers, back at it. Fantastic conversation with Let's Run.com's Jonathan Galt about the 2023 Chicago Marathon. Jonathan has been with Let's Run for nearly a decade now, and he has covered countless major running events. He's one of the best, most insightful riders going in the game. We talk about Kelvin Kiptum's electric world record performance. He goes 34 seconds faster than Elliot Kipchoge's previous world record. We discuss Safan Hassan's ridiculous 2023 season and standout American results from Sunday, October 8th in the Windy City. Toward the end, Jonathan reflects on his writing career and how he's evolved as a journalist. Before we get to the conversation, sponsorship. This episode is sponsored by Sportwatch. Save time with the Sportwatch app by quickly storing athlete performance and identifying trends. Start tracking your team today at sportwatch.us. Jonathan, you've been with Let's Run for how many years now? Almost 10 years. I started working spring of 2014 as an intern and full-time that fall. So yeah, more than nine years at this point. Whoa. So a decade next year. Mm-hmm. Cool. We are talking now two days after Chicago Marathon. I was keeping up with your updates, social media, and wow, we had some fireworks in the Windy City, and you were there for it. Kelvin Kiptum of Kenya, 23 years old, third marathon, breaks Elliot Kipchoge's world record, goes two hours flat 35 seconds how do we say that i know you were having trouble like how do you say the world record now yeah i i was debating that on the let's run podcast that we came out with today is like we usually we say with like 20109 but i wouldn't say 20035 that kind of sounds weird to me so i think i'm just gonna say two hours 35 seconds but the way he's going, maybe it's 159 pretty soon, and then it's easy for us to say again. Yeah, it seems like now before we know it, we're going to see a one at the start of the marathon world record. And Kelvin Kiptum, third marathon, two hours, 35 seconds. You wrote all about it. You know the history. Can you just tell us what in the world happened? How do you describe this otherworldly performance? Well, he did something pretty similar to what he did in his first two marathons, honestly. Uh, he went out pretty quick, and he closed really hard. He has now run the three fastest second halves in marathon history, and he's done it in his last three marathons. He closed a little slower, actually, than he did in London in April, when he ran 201.25. That race he closed in 59.45 for a second half. This time he closed in 59.47. The difference was the conditions were better, uh, near perfect for marathoning, mid-40s for most of the way. Little win, but not too much. And he went out faster than he did in London. He went out in 60-48 on Sunday. And that, coupled with his second half, where he just totally put the hammer down around 30K, he <laughs> enabled him to run a time we've never seen before. These negative splits, he is negative split every marathon, Right. Yeah, and by like pretty big margins. I, and that's one thing I can't really explain is 
we have seen Kipchoge do it. Kipchoge did a negative split uh, a few years ago, I think, when he set the world record the first time in Berlin. But, uh, I mean, closing a marathon in 50, sub, sub 60 minutes, I don't know. It just looks so easy for him. And I don't know, is this, just, is this guy an insane talent? Is he doing something that we can't comprehend that allows him to get faster at a part where a lot of people struggle. I, I don't know, but that's probably the wildest thing about all this stuff he's doing is just how easy he makes it look. In the second half, he dropped a 421 mile and a 418 mile, which is just <laughs> ludicrous in a marathon. Are those the two fastest miles in a marathon that you know of? 418 is the fastest for sure. Yeah, uh, I think so. Because remember last year when... Uh, Amos Kipruto won the London Marathon. I think he ran a 421 in there, or there was a split that was provided as 421. But then it wasn't totally sure if that mile split was accurate. And I I never totally know. I mean, the next marathon, I think the next mile he ran after the 421 was a 446 in Chicago, which seemed a little on the slower side. So who knows exactly how quick, but his second half was the fastest second half ever. So if there's going to be a guy who drops a 418 mile in a marathon, it's this guy. Yeah. These second halves are American record half marathon times. Ryan Hall's gone 59.47, and is he the only American to go under 60 minutes? I think Ritz was 60 flat. Uh, I believe Leonard Correa has run sub-60, and Galen Rupp might have done it in Rome or something like that. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, he that's a, that's a great way of looking at it. He's running for his second half what the best Americans of all time have run in, a full, in an all-out half marathon. Yeah, it's surreal. 201.53 Valencia 2022, 201.25 London this year, and now 200.35 Chicago. 23 years old. I know there's talk about his age, and we have this with the East African athletes where we're wondering, okay, how valid are the ages? I know you had a source that told you maybe 26 years old. Regardless, still under 30 years old, 23 we take that as his official age and marathon where do you go from here maybe ultra marathons he's got three of the six fastest marathons already where does he go from here you can't really imagine a 15 to 20 year marathon career on the roads yeah especially with some of the training he's been doing uh his coach says he's running 150 160 170 miles a week a few weeks before london and 180 miles a week his quote was that you know he needs to slow down essentially or he's not going to last more than five more years in the sport so i don't know where he goes from here obviously he wants to win the olympic gold medal and i think that's going to be a hell of an olympic marathon if we get kipchoge and evans chibet and kept him in there i think he could become the first man under two hours he's clearly the favorite to do that if he can stay healthy so He's still got stuff to do. Will he be able to stick around and surpass Kipchoge's resume? I'm not sure because I think the other, Kipchoge obviously has run really fast times, but what sets him apart from everyone else is the longevity. He's just won, he's won 16 races and 19 starts. He's been the best in the world for a decade, essentially. We've never seen something like that in the marathon 
And even for Kiptum of his talent, my guess is he's going to be regressing before he gets we get to like 2033. But yeah, I don't know. It's it's insane what he's already accomplished. It really is. We have to have the showdown next year. We got to have the Olympic showdown, Kipchoge, Kiptum. And we often see more tactical races in those world championships, Olympics, going for a podium spot, a gold medal. So not that we need to see this back and forth sub two hour marathon in Paris next year, but just like a barn burner of a battle would be incredible, even if it ends in 204 and change. Oh, yeah. I don't care about the time in that one. I just want to see these guys go head to head. And maybe it happens in London next spring before the Olympics. My suspicion is they will not race until Paris, but whenever they do, it's going to be a big deal. What is your suspicion with that for the listeners when you hear, like, okay, Kiptum just ran in October and it might not be until, what, August for his next marathon? Like how they space these marathons out and race one, maybe two a year. Yeah, I I bet he'll go back to London. London likes to try to bring back the defending champions. They pay very well. I'm sure he's going to command a massive appearance fee now that he's the world record holder as well. So I think he'll go to London and we have seen people run well in London and bounce back and run well at the Olympics as well. So I think Kipton will, Kipton will if I had to bet, that's probably where he'll be next and then do the Olympics. Okay. Yep. You talked about his training and yeah, that was one of my questions in this preparation thinking, I wonder if Jonathan thinks this is sustainable where he's putting in this amount of mileage. And this is a, he's already one of the greats for sure. He has three of the six fastest times, Let's see where the marathon goes from here. I think now that we're so close to the two-hour barrier, it could be like the four-minute mile barrier where, okay, we see this. We're this close. Now how many more humans are going to get this fast and then dip under two? But how sustainable with 170, 180-mile weeks? And again, like you don't go back to the 10,000 meters on the track or the 5,000. It's He's on the roads this young and seems like this is where he'll be for as long as his career lasts. Yeah, he was asked that actually in the press conference after Chicago, like, would you go on the track? And he just looked confused by the question. <laughs> and then Kerry Pentkowski, their race director in Chicago, is like, why would he go back to the track? So, yeah, he's on the roads. And this is I do wonder about the sustainability of this stuff because we have seen people run like these mega, mega miles, uh, Cam Levens, the Canadian record holder who was fourth at the World Championships last year, he ran, I think, 170 to 180 uh, a week in his build-up for Worlds, and he's long done very high mileage. Some people can withstand it, but when you couple in the intensity, I mean, the sample week that his coach said included two hard long runs, 30 to 40 kilometers at marathon pace or close to it, and also two like interval sessions or fartlek sessions. So that's four hard sessions in a week where you're running insane miles, like 26 a day. I, I don't know. Like I don't know if the coach is exaggerating or if shoes have just bent all conceptions of what we can actually do in training or he's just a natural freak or he's found some super drug. I mean, he's never tested positive or anything like mm-hmm. that, but you can't rule that out as a possibility. I don't know what the explanation is, but that training 
it, it blows my mind. It does. I can't comprehend how it's possible for a guy to do that. And th- I think there are a few explanations. And I don't know which one's right right now. Yeah. The shoes, for sure. He's in a prototype, correct? Nike prototype? What it sounds like was he wore a prototype of what... Or it was either a prototype or it's what is going to be the Alpha Fly 3 that will be pr- released next year. I think something like that. Okay. And... You mentioned drugs as well. It's just hard not to talk about that in this day and age and how many positive tests we've had out of East Africa in the last six months. And I heard something, too, about his agent being involved or many of his athletes have tested positive. And it's this is Hooray Run Podcast. We want to celebrate and be in awe, of course. And you have to bring in some skepticism when you see this. We didn't know Kiptum 12 months ago. And here he is. Yeah, it's an obvious question to be asked. And the Athletics Integrity Unit, as soon as he ran 201.53 in Valencia, he's going to be on their radar. They're going to be trying to test him and make sure that he's complete, competing clean. But it will be foolish to ignore the fact that Kenya is in the midst of a major doping crisis. Mm-hmm. And they're having a number of athletes, many of them high-profile athletes, test positive or get suspended for whereabouts violations or for athlete biological passport violations. So it's something you have to consider, but Kiptum himself never tested positive, never really. I mean, if you want to link him to his agent, but again, how much contact does he actually have with him? I don't know. But yeah, it's, it's something you have to at least suggest could be possible, even though we don't have any proof or anything. Yeah, we certainly hope not. And again, we want to see that showdown at the olympics next year and yeah absolutely flying again talking about the splits and his interviews after the race and how he was talking about pain i mean we associate the marathon distance with pain and persevering through suffering and battling to the finish line and kiptum says he's never felt pain in any of his three marathons yeah and the more I think about that, I do wonder if something was lost in translation. Like maybe he's trans he's thinking pain means like legitimate injury or something like, you know, sure. And he's not thinking of the discomfort that we would all associate with the latter stages of a marathon. But at the same time, when you run your best races, often they don't feel as bad. And maybe in the marathon, that's not as true as, you know, some track events, but you know, Kipchoge, when he's broken the world marathon record in Berlin, he's been beating his chest. He's been jumping in the arms of Patrick saying he looked pretty good at the end of those races as well. So I thought it was, it was a crazy comment because I couple that with how he looks when he's running. He just looks like he's sprinting sometimes in the second half of these races. He looks, most people don't look like Kelvin Kiptum does in the second half of a marathon. So I do wonder if he's ever hurting, but I also wonder if something might have been lost in translation with that response. Yeah. Yeah, the flow, the pace, it's hard to discern on TV sometimes. And I'm sure spectating it, you're there at mile 22 and he's going 418 and you're just thinking, he's almost done and he's moving like that. What in the world? And his move really came at 18. Is that correct? Where did he break off? Yeah, I think right around there is where he dropped uh, Daniel Mateko, and he was on his own from there. Yep. And Kiptum, now two flat, 
35. Awesome payday for him. Sure, again, appearance fee in the six figures and then well into the six figures with course record, world record, first place. Do you know, have you told it anything? Are you in on that in terms of prize money or appearance fees? Do you know much on, on that front? Uh, the only thing I would know is what's publicly listed as the prize money. And yeah, he would have gotten, I, I don't actually, I haven't even looked at what Chicago <laughs> pays out, but they have a listed first place prize and a listed course record bonus. I think they got rid of the world record bonus once these super shoes hit and they didn't know, you know, we're seeing, we've seen two world records in 15 days now on the men's and women's side. So they probably realized it's more likely to happen, but he will have also, they, it's, it's pretty hard to know exactly because so much of this stuff's private. Like an athlete might sign an appearance contract. We don't know the appearance fee. He might also have some private bonus with Chicago saying like, Hey, if you break the world record, we'll pay you this. It's just not listed publicly. And then of course, his Nike contract, they're going to give him bonuses for performing well at world marathon majors or running fast times or breaking world records. So I I would guess all told, he probably made mid six figures from this. But then when you factor in what he can make going forward in terms of appearance fees, of being a world record holder, of being a Chicago marathon champion, uh, that's another few hundred thousand and maybe more maybe i'm it's on the low end i i don't know exactly but this will set him up very very well absolutely places two through five in chicago would all be american records and we're not going to remember these performances which is just wild places two through five getting to sixth place that's where we had connor mance so moving to the american men uh, had some okay we got to get this olympic standard uh, 208.10 uh, no one had hit it prior to chicago and connor manson sixth and his teammate clayton young 208 flat uh, tell us what you were hearing on the course about um, how it was going through halfway through half marathon and and also the lead up to it what you were hearing in interviews and was there any pressure or was that really the focus like from these top guys, including Galen Rupp, and we saw Sam Chalanga also go sub 209. Were you hearing that a lot from the American men about the standard? You know, it's interesting. The top two guys going in on paper in the American field were Connor Mance and Galen Rupp, and I don't think either of them were all that concerned with the standard because they think on their best day, they shouldn't have to worry about it. They're going to be thinking of trying to run in the 206s and 207s. Connor Mance said it was a basically his B goal, like a bare minimum was getting the Olympic standard. And Galen Rupp was asked about it in the pre-race press conference. He just kind of smiled. He's like, yeah, I think a few people are going to have the standard afterwards. He kind of suggested that he wasn't going to have an issue with it. And if you look at that halfway splits, those two were b- both through halfway on at 63-21. So well under the standard, you know, 206 play- pace. And Sam Schlanger and Daniel Mesfin, two other Americans, were right with them. So... For a long time, it did look like we were going to have three or maybe even four Americans hitting the standard. I think as late as 35K, Chalanga and Rupp were both on pace. Those guys just kind of unraveled late, and they both ran 208. For Chalanga, that's a huge PB. For Rupp, you know, it's a step in the right direction after an injury plagued last two years. But 
you know, it, it was a pretty good day for Americans, certainly for Clayton Young, who ran the race of his life to this point, and for Mance to get a PB, even though he kind of died the last 5K, that's a good showing. You know, 207.47, he's now tied for number four all time. But with how they, with how the Americans were positioned at about 35K, I think there might be a little disappointment that they couldn't unlock that third Olympic spot and really just make it all about racing at the trials instead of maybe wondering about this standard or world rankings, that sort of thing. Sure. And there's a lot of factors that go into this third spot. Now I don't need you to get into all the details about these rankings and okay. American can run a a fast half marathon before the trials. There's a bunch that goes into it. Are you without, maybe you will go into the details of it and that's totally fine, but there is a chance still that, um, cause we're not expecting sub 20810 in Orlando with a noon start. I guess that's kind of an understood thing. It could happen. We could have someone go under the Olympic standard at the trials. But if we don't, what is the possibility? Are you confident we'll have three going? I feel pretty good about it because even if there aren't three qualified by the trials, the actual window for Olympic qualifying ends on April 30th. So essentially what the Olympics does, they pick the top 64 athletes uh, on January 30th. I think that was basically done to accommodate the U.S. trials, uh, which are on February 3rd. And then the remaining 16 athletes of the 80-person field will be selected after that. So I think one way or another, it's pretty likely the U.S. does have three spots. And I think it is possible that going into the trials, they'll know they have three spots because some of the people ahead of Americans, the world rankings are going to move down because their world rankings are based on the last 18 months, but the qualifying window actually didn't open until November 1st, 2022. So it's kind of messy, but I think the odds are fairly good. And there is also one final opportunity for Americans to hit the standard. And that would be Futsum Zainislasi and Elkana Kibet in New York on November 5th. If either of those guys finish in the top five, they would that counts as the Olympic standard. Okay, so New York City Marathon, we could have that third spot unlocked. Yeah, it would take a big run from either mm-hmm. of them, but I think Quebec was fourth in New York two years ago, so it's not totally out of the picture. Yep. You mentioned Mance now tied for fourth all-time on the American list, marathoning. Tied with Dathan Ritzenhain, interestingly enough, ran his 207.47 at Chicago 2012. And now Mance tied with Ritz on the list, 207.47. And Mance is early in his career, in his marathoning career, and he's got versatility. We've seen him in high-octane track races and a lot of different kilometer distances on the road so far. And now three marathons in for him, and he's looking like the favorite to be our number one American going to the Paris Olympics. Yeah, I think that's a fair assessment. Um, You know, it's interesting because Scott Farble did beat Mance in Boston earlier this year, and that's a race, more trials like there was no rabbits. But they also took very different approaches in that one, and then Farble did not have a good race in Berlin, um, had some issues there and had to drop out. So... It's going to be really interesting because I think Mance, yeah, if you had to bet who's the most likely to make it, it's probably him. He's had three marathons. They've all been pretty good. I don't think he's yet to have that really great marathon that he's hoping for, but 
he's pretty reliable. He's tough. So I think he'll do well. But Rupp, if Rupp can stay healthy the next four months, you're never going to never want to bet against that guy. Nope. And Clayton Young was only 12 seconds behind Mance. It is going to be pretty interesting. And, and Fauble, I think, will be back with the vengeance. Yeah, it, it's going to be a fun trials. Certainly. Clayton Young, he's seventh in Chicago and now seventh fastest American in history with the 208 flat. Definitely something to celebrate. And we had two more, Rupp and Chalenga going under 209. You had a wild stat. Tell us the one about how many marathons now we've had two Americans under 209 in the same race. Yeah, this was only the second in history. And the first one was 41 years ago in Boston, the famous duel in the sun between Alberto Salazar and Dick Beardsley. Now, that stat you would think, oh, this is totally mind-blowing. It's crazy that we've had, you know, this is the greatest day ever in the history of American marathoning. But at the same time, the shoes, I think, have just so skewed our perception of what's a fast time. And this was really good conditions. Like, when's the last time we had a bunch of top Americans in a race like Chicago, which have has a flat course and good weather, and you've got the super shoes. There haven't been that many opportunities. We had the marathon project a few years ago, and a bunch of people ran in the 209s, but Mance wasn't in that race. Galen Rupp wasn't in that race. You didn't have some of the very, very top-tier talent like you do in this one. So it's somewhat crazy, but at the same time, I'm not shocking because if, if I'm not that shocked because if it wasn't going to happen in Chicago with the conditions we had on Sunday, it's probably never going to happen. Yeah, stars aligned conditions the course and wild too to think that these really wonderful american performances seven eight minutes back from kiptum i think you mentioned it it kind of felt like he was in his own race kelvin up front because then you have what four minutes to second place and then these american performances again all-time performances for the marathon list in the u.s and seven eight nine minutes back from Kiptum. Yeah. I asked Manson Clayton Young about that actually in the press conference and Manson was just kind of was like that's a reminder, you know, 207 to PB. It's not a bad race, but they're not satisfied with just being top American. And I think it's probably unrealistic to think they'll ever run 2 hours, but it also reminds them like, hey, don't just sit on your laurels and say I'm happy to be to have personal to run a personal best there's still a long long way to go with the to the best in the world right now sure manson young they train together in utah that's right yep and that they're under ed eyestone yep okay. so they both ran at byu and they're still in provo uh now training with ed and jerry ward also is part of that group ed was on the call as well for nbc yes he was yep and you had an interview with him. He was definitely excited about the day. It's a big day for his group, those two guys, top two, top two Americans. Anything else you took away from that interview you had with him? I think he was proud of what they had accomplished in running really good races, but also what they did for the United States to get those two spots. And he didn't want to just, you know, he's obviously looking ahead to the trials as everyone is, but at the same time, I don't think he wants to just say, well, okay, this is only, this only matters if we made the trial, if we make the team in Orlando. He's wants to 
say, hey, you guys should be proud of what you accomplished. You helped unlock two spots for the Americans. And don't just say, because the trials are four months from now, we can't enjoy and can't appreciate what they accomplished in Chicago. So this was a, you know, it's pretty much as good a day as a coach can get at a world marathon major for Americans having two, two in the top 10, both running times in the top 10 all time for Americans. It's really impressive stuff. So he, he didn't, he just wanted to make sure they enjoyed and appreciated that accomplishment. Rups two Oh eight forty eight and Chalanga sub two Oh nine. And he really hadn't figured out the marathon before Sunday. So that was a major performance from Chalanga. Give us more background and again, how he's feeling now a sub 209 marathoner. Yeah. I, w- I wanted to be able to talk to Chalanga afterwards and I, I d- didn't actually see him in the media area in Chicago, but I- I'd like to know what changed. Cause this is a guy extremely talented in college, he was dueling with Rupp for NCAA titles. He still has the NCAA record in the 10,000 meters, 27.08. He comes out, runs decently well on the track as a pro, but then in 2018, he says, I'm retiring, I'm joining the Army. And then almost immediately, he says, actually, no, I still want to run, and I'm going to join the U.S. Army world-class athlete program, the WCAP. He starts doing that. And he's running pretty well at the shorter distances. He was the top American at World Cross this year, but he's tried the marathon a bunch of times and never seemed to go right. And I kind of thought at this point, he was 30th in Boston in April. He ran 220. I'm just like, all right, this guy's just not a marathoner. He's never going to be a marathoner. So that's something I would love to know is what changed, uh, what went wrong in his previous marathons because it finally went right in Chicago and now he's certainly a contender to make the Olympic team in Orlando. Yeah, he is. Maybe he got his first pair of super shoes for Chicago. <laughs> something like that. You wonder about his build up too, his training, and that's something, yeah, in an interview, of course, can ask him what changed after Boston. Like you said, two twenty in Boston and that was in April and here we are, October, and he's he was two fifteen P B before Chicago. Yeah, and I'm curious, maybe it was army responsibilities, like he was had fewer responsibilities with the army for this build up as compared to Boston. Yeah. I'm not sure. Uh but whatever it whatever it was, keep it the same for the next one, buddy. For sure. Wanted to shout out Brian Schrader as well, 32-year-old. He went under 210, um tied as the 30th 30th fastest American marathoner ever now. Huge performance from Schrader. Did you talk with him at all, hear from his coach or any teammates? Uh, no, this, like I said, basically same situation as Chalanga. I didn't see him in the media center afterwards. The only Americans they brought in were, for the men, were Young and Mance, and then Rupp was there, but he didn't want to do an interview with me. So I uh, don't know what happened with Schrader either, but again, like you said, with Chalanga, this is a big breakthrough for him. He'd run... A bunch of other marathons, none of them have gone particularly crazy fast. Remember the last Olympic trials he was leading through halfway, really went for it, thought he was in 209 shape, and oh, then yeah. just blew up. This time he really was in 209 shape. Obviously, Chicago, easier course than Atlanta. Um, but yeah, it's good. He's stuck it out for a while, so nice to see him having success. Definitely. Let's go to the women's race now. Safan Hassan, heroics, 213. 
44. And you've posed the question, Jonathan, okay, what's more impressive? What Kiptum did, 2 flat, 35, or let's take Hassan's season as a whole and consider that, okay, what was more impressive? So give us the 2023 season recap for Safan Hassan. Yeah, she announces, I think it was either end of 2022 or start of 2023, she's going to be making a London marath- her debut in London. She was saying, I've got a track season to prepare for. I'm not really going to go full bore into marathon. I just want to kind of see what I can do. She shows up, wins the damn thing against a stacked field, and that was after stopping midway through to stretch out a quad or whatever it was. Just one of the wildest marathons I've ever seen. So she wins that. Then she goes back to the track, triples at the World Championships in August in the 5K, 10K, and the 1500, wins two medals. And six weeks later, she runs the Chicago Marathon and wins it and runs the second fastest time in history, 2.13.44. So when I'm looking at what she did and what Kelvin Kiptum did, they both won London, they both won Chicago, and Kiptum's times comparatively are a little faster, but he didn't run a track season in the middle. <laughs> he didn't medal in the 1500 meters at the World Championships 47 days before winning Chicago. So I don't know. I mean, what his marathon season was better, but when you combine the two, I don't know if anyone could do what Hassan did. Meddling in the 15 and then winning two major marathons in the same year. That, to me, I think is the more mind-blowing performance uh, of the two. Yeah, it's absolutely ridiculous. Unprecedented. Yeah, we've never seen this. No, no. It's, it's crazy, and we may never see it again. I mean, I'm trying to think. You mentioned Jakob, the Let's right? Run, yeah. yeah, the Let's Run podcast, we said, hey, maybe Jakob is the person with the skill set to do it. And I guess, I mean, Tix Sefa, the women's marathon world record holder, she ran 159 for 800. Now, she didn't really do anything close to what Hassan's done for 1500. So maybe Faith Kip Yegon, who knows when she stepped up. She stepped up very easily to the 5K this year, set the world record and broke, sorry, set the world record and won gold at the World Championships. She has said she wants to run the marathon. So I don't know. Maybe this is a new era and new possibilities, but. Right now, Hassan's essentially a freak, a generational freak with the skill set. And yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to really comprehend what she's doing. Second fastest ever now. And do you think we'll hear from her in the next couple months about 2023 outlook? Will she announce, okay, here's what I'm doing on the roads versus the track and looking to the Olympics? Do you feel like we're going to get a schedule from her? Probably not. She likes to kind of have some fun with it and leave people in the dark until the last minute. You remember with Tokyo, it wasn't until Tokyo that she really committed to running all three events at the Olympics. And same thing with Budapest. The day before the meet is when she said, I'm going for the triple. So I think what I talked to her coach, Tim Robery, and he told me, She's definitely running at least one event on the track in Paris next year. Okay. Doesn't know how many and doesn't mean she can't also do the marathon. The marathon is the last day of the games. So it wouldn't shock me if she does something like what we saw from Emil Zadepec in 1952 or 
Lassie Viren, it was either 72 or 76. He, they both did the 5K, 10K, and then entered the marathon on the last day of the games. She could do that and just enter the marathon and heading into the games. And if she's feeling good, actually run the race. Wouldn't shock me. But the only thing we know for sure is that she's planning on doing stuff on the track at the Olympics. Okay. What did we hear from her in post-race pressers? She was pretty amazed as well frankly uh she said going in she just wanted to learn how this thing felt and she said it did not feel good early in the race and she kind of rallied like we saw halfway she was six seconds behind chep and Gedich, but she rallied and she said she did not feel good at the very end of the race she was thinking the last 5k i'm never running a marathon again this is too painful i don't enjoy this so <laughs> this was not all fun and games for her but once she finished she was kind of in awe of what she had accomplished like the rest of us so i know she was thinking i'm never running a marathon again but how many of us have felt that and then gone back out and run another marathon my suspicion is she will run another marathon in her career and probably next year for sure the american women some hiccups along the way with the women i know we still had some really solid results maybe not as much as we were hoping or expecting and I'm sure the runners have and would admit that themselves. Emily Sisson, the American record holder, uh, still put together a seventh place finish, uh, 2:22:09, which is still one of the fastest American marathons ever on the women's side. Now she's run 2:18, so a far cry from that. Um, would you take away from Sisson's seventh place finish? I think it was a good sign for her and obviously she's not going to be satisfied with the time but when you're talking about making an Olympic team you don't get to choose if you have a good race or not at the trials you need to make the team with what you've got on the day and Sisson kind of did that today in terms of like that kind of approach obviously she doesn't get credit for this when it comes to making an Olympic team she needs to do it in Orlando but she got this side stitch with eight miles to go. She still fought through it. She still ran 2.22.09, which is a time that most Americans right now would have trouble hitting. So I think she can be encouraged by saying, even though she wasn't at her best, she fought on and held on well enough to beat every other American on the field. That's a confidence builder heading into the trials, even if her overall time wasn't quite as fast. Molly Seidel, she's back, 2.23.07. A personal best for Molly, uh, an Olympic medalist. Um, talk about what she's gone through since that Olympic medal to get back to this point. It sounded like she was really encouraged. She was. She was definitely the happiest of the Americans in Chicago, as she should be, running a personal best, her best marathon since in almost two years, since New York in 2021. And actually, you could argue this one's even better because she ran faster, but that one she had the American course record, New York's tougher course. But yeah, it's been tough because remember 2020, she makes the Olympic team. 2021, she wins a shocking bronze medal in Tokyo, then runs a PB in New York, and she's America's darling. You know, in the running world, everyone's paying attention to her. She runs Boston in 2022. And the expectation is Molly is going to be running really, really well and everyone's following her and she wasn't healthy in that race and ends up dropping out. 
she wasn't healthy after that. She dealt with a bunch of, she dealt with injuries, but she also dealt with an eating disorder, some mental health issues. You know, there's been a lot on her plate and it did not help her that she had all this attention and expectations and pressure and everyone wanted a piece of her. Everyone wanted interviews. Everyone wanted her doing appearances, all that sort of stuff. And when you compound that with the off the track stuff she was going through in terms of her mental health and the injuries, all of that just put her in a really dark place. And this time last year, she was still struggling to, struggling to come out of it. And it took her a while, but she, she's there. And this is, I think she would be the first to admit, this isn't something where you can just say, okay, everything that happened in the last two years, that's totally behind me and I never have to think about it again. This is an ongoing battle. And she said that with her eating disorder. But right now, she's in a pretty good place. And there is going, the expectations are now going to be ramped up. Coming into Chicago, people weren't talking about her as much because they were talking about Sisson and Bates. Now they're going to be saying, oh, Molly Seidel's back. She's the Olympic bronze medalist. She's going to have a lot more attention going into Orlando. So she's going to have to figure out a way to deal with that. But if she can, we know how good she is. So, yeah, this was, this was a good weekend for her. And she seemed very happy both before and after the race and the interview. She seemed like she was in a, a good place mentally and physically. Yep, back in the foreground, she's said that too, where, yeah, not as much pressure going into Chicago. And, yes, there still some media obligations, but not nearly as many, like you mentioned, from her Olympic medal days and her um, stellar performances from a couple of years ago. And now that she's had that experience, yeah, we're hoping that, okay, now she's back at the forefront. She's one of the best and one of the favorites to represent USA next year and She's been through that and having the spotlight. So, yeah, I'm really eager to see how the rest of 2022 and then into 23 goes for Molly. We're going then to uh, Gabby Rooker, and we had Dakota Lindworm. So two runners based in Minnesota with some eye-opening results. They have been climbing those charts and 225s and it's just really remarkable to see okay gabby rooker was a 250 something marathoner a couple years ago and now she's 224 and 10th place in chicago Um, what do you know about about rooker about uh, lindworm and their ascensions in the last couple years yeah lindworm is someone who has been in the lead pack a couple times in Boston, New York, and has logged a couple decent runs. She had run a PB to win the Grandma's Marathon last year, 225.01. She's been first or second in Grandma's the last three years. I'm looking it up right now. So yep. she, this wasn't a shock for her, for, for me to see this result, 224.40, uh, a little bit of a PR. I think actually, from what I could tell, she wanted to run a little bit faster, but Gabby Rooker, massive personal best from the last couple of years. And she's someone, honestly, I was watching the race and to my right in Chicago in the press room was David Monty of Race Results Weekly. And he pointed out, you know, Gabby Rooker, look at this. She just ran 224 in Chicago. And I said, who's Gabby Rooker? Like, is that a maiden name or is that a married name? Like, is this someone I've heard of or is this someone who's just come out of nowhere? And honestly, I knew I knew nothing about her before this race. Yeah. Uh, but then I looked it up. It's an incredible story. She was a D3 
national champion in gymnastics in 2010 at Wisconsin lacrosse. She picked up running a few years ago, started improving, PR'd by 20 minutes last year at Grandma's. That was her big breakthrough. But that only took her to 234. Yeah. You know, 234 is good, but still a long way from 224. So she has just continued to improve. Clearly, she's made for this event. And it's amazing. You know, she's in her mid-30s. It kind of reminds me of Kira D'Amato, who had this big layoff from the sport and then in her late 30s became an American record holder. I'm not saying Gabby Rooker can get all the way there, but I don't know. I think anything's possible with how much she's improved the last year. It's one of the craziest, coolest stories coming out of Chicago. Yeah, and the timing for it, too, as we're heading into an Olympic year. What is the women's standard for Olympics? I believe it's 226.30, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't, I I don't think it matters all that much because the US is definitely going to be sending three. And I think pretty much anyone who's going to contend is going to be able to get subbed in by USATF. I I think the replacement standard is about 229.30. So, most American women won't have to worry about the standard, uh, I don't think. Okay. And just behind uh, Rooker and Lindworm, we had Emma Bates, uh, one of the American favorites going into Sunday. How is Emma looking halfway through on Sunday? Halfway, she looked good and felt good, I, from what I can tell. She hit half in 69-31, mm. right with Emily Sisson, and I think she was ready for a big one. But I think it was picking up a bottle and making a turn. She had an issue with her plantar fascia. I I think it was something that might have bothered her a little bit coming in, but it's kind of unclear. I didn't get to talk to her. She had to go to the medical tent after the race. Uh, she was having trouble walking. She stopped to walk a couple times in this race, actually, as well. It's a rough one. You just hope that it's not something that lingers. Mm-hmm. If it's something she can get over in a week or two and then do a full build-up for the trials, she's going to be right up there with the very best of them because we know what she's capable of. We saw it in Boston in April. If she's dealing with this planner thing and it lingers throughout the build-up, then you start to get worried. And I, you know, it's, it's, a little, it's probably too early to tell how long it's going to last. Yep. Do you know who are the top American women running in New York City? Uh, Kellen Taylor is running it, and there might be one other, but it's it's a pretty small U.S. field given the quick turnaround to Orlando. Okay. I feel like predicting the top three American women at the trials is really difficult. Sisson, yeah, the American record holder, top American in Chicago. But we didn't have D'Amato. We didn't have Sarah Hall in this race. We saw some of America's best in the Windy City. Uh, Seidel back in it now, 223 low. What would you say right now, Jonathan, your top three from what you know, health and how they've been racing lately? What would you say, looking to February on the women's side, top three in Orlando? Gosh, it's so hard because four years ago in Atlanta, I said, all right, there are five women who can make it. It's going to be three of those five, and none of those five ended up making it. (laughs) So take this prediction with a grain of salt, but 
I feel good about Sisson, you know, American record holder. She ran well enough in Chicago. I just think at her best, she's she's a good heat runner as well. So those three things, I think, really play in her favor. I would take her. Betsy Siner has looked amazing. This is a woman who's run 30.07 on the track for 10,000, was, I think, fifth or sixth in the Olympic final back in 2016. Huge talent. She won the Sydney Marathon, which was quite warm conditions, I think pretty similar to Orlando. She's been looking good. So I think I would go with her. Mm -hmm. And then for that third spot, I was probably leaning towards... Oh, I was leaning towards Tuliamuk, Elephine Tuliamuk, the defending champion a few weeks ago. But her withdrawing from Chicago, I think there's just questions about her health. It's scary when you're withdrawing that soon to the trials. So I don't know. Um, Did Tuliamuk race? Again, the same thing. Like, Sorry, what was that? Sorry. Did Tuliamuk race earlier this season? She She ran back in Boston and it was a little further back i think from emma bates okay um so but i do think the trial style kind of race will help her you know and she'd shown she showed a promising result she was the top american in new york in 2022 so Mm -hmm. i felt those two things made her a contender but again the health issue kind of scares me so then I would say that third spot, I'd probably be debating between Molly Seidel and Emma Bates. And I really help, the fact that Bates had this planner thing and Seidel's trending upwards, I think I'd go Seidel. So if you ask me right now, I would say my top three is Sisson, Sina, and Seidel. But uh, who knows, man? There's a lot of people who could fill those spots. <laughs> for sure. Can't wait for it. Trials coming up in February. Uh, Des Linden, I want to mention Des. Still at it, I believe, 25 marathons now to her name. Yeah, she's, I mean, I'm thinking 2011 Boston. I'm thinking her 2017 Boston, of course. Just so many standout moments from Dez's career. And just on Sunday, she got the American Masters record, took it from Dina Castor, uh, 227.35 for Dez. I'm sure you've seen her race a ton of times, Jonathan, over the years. Uh, just talk about Dez's grit. Yeah, she she's as tough as they come. She's really smart as well. Uh, you don't really see her making many mistakes. Back when she was in her prime, you know, she'd just run her race. And if her race was going to get her fourth, she was okay with that. You know, she didn't. She just wanted to make sure she wasn't beating herself. That she was putting herself in position to run the best race possible on that day. So that's what I really admire about her is just her intelligence and knowing how to handle these marathons. But this one in Chicago, you know, she wanted that master's record and I think she'd be the first to admit it was a little bit harder for Dina Casta to get it because Dina, whose record she broke, an all-time American legend, was running without the super shoes. But, you know, Dez isn't going to decline to compete in the super shoes you know she needs to get she wants that record especially because kira damato is going to be turning 40 next year sarah hall is already 40 we are going to see some other women with a chance to break that record as well but yeah i have so much admiration for des and what she's accomplished in her career and yeah it looks like she'll be going i assume 2024 will be her last trials yeah 
but who knows? Yeah, it, it's interesting with the sport how we really have to break it up into eras now and like when did the super shoe era start and you hear that with other sports too okay we have this era that era and because it's so hard to compare like we have times just on paper we have times that were recorded but we need all the factors that went into those times it it is something when you think like des her pb is from how many years ago and we would say that's pre-super shoe era it just makes you reflect on those and how much more remarkable Ryan Hall's 204.58, Canucci's American record, Ritz's 207.47 from 11 years ago. It really is wild to think because you can go even conversations for hours. Okay, what would they have run? Or will we have conversions someday, you know, like a 300-meter track to a 200-meter track time? Will we have conversions like Ritz's 207.47 would be this if he had the shoe technology? Well, the interesting thing is you talk about Ryan Hall and Des Linden. Their PBs are both from 2011 Boston when they had that enormous tailwind. Yeah. So even before the shoes, you're saying, oh, well, this one was in a race. It was a downhill course. Or this one, there was a big tailwind that day. So it's never been a perfect comparison in the marathon, but certainly it's become harder to compare across eras with the explosion of fast times with the shoes now. Yeah. The... Adidas $500 shoe. Did you see much of that in Chicago? How many athletes, did you get any number on that? How many were wearing that shoe? No, I'm sure whatever Adidas athletes in the field probably wore it. I'm guessing Benson Kiprudo, the runner-up on the men's side, wore it. But I'm not entirely sure. Many of the best athletes were Nike athletes. It's a Nike-sponsored race. So I don't know. I didn't. I didn't hear as much hype about it because the race with one by two Nike athletes. So I think people were curious what were on their feet, but yeah, it's interesting coming out of Berlin. People like, Oh my God, does Adidas now have the lead in the shoe arms race as the new shoe? And then Nike comes back and I think they both were wearing the alpha fly three and gets the win and a world record in the number two time in history. So maybe the shoes, I, I don't know. We, we have, we need to see like empirical lab testing data to see which shoe is really better. And then you've got some athletes respond better to the certain shoe than others. It's kind of hard to tell. I think they're both probably pretty great shoes though. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> yeah. What else from Chicago, from your time there in the city, any other takeaways, any talking points that we haven't covered that stood out to you or something in your writing that you want to mention on the podcast? I think we did a pretty good job of covering everything. Uh, it was just fun to be there. It's always a nice trip to Chicago. They had great weather for the race. And I think we put that together with the fields they had. The fields were very competitive. Uh, I, I really appreciate how many good Americans are running. And obviously they're going to have an advantage with recruiting Americans because it's a U.S. race and most athletes aren't going to want to run New York because it's only three months before the trials. So any American kind of wanting to go for a fast time or get in one last blowout before the trials is going to do Chicago. So I appreciated that they were there. I thought that was exciting. I guess the one downside was the broadcast wasn't all that great if you're trying to follow American athletes. And I'd love to see them get a couple extra vehicles to follow those U.S. runners in the pack so we can see... Rupp and Mance and Sisson, Seidel and Bates before the last few miles. But otherwise, no, it was a 
fun day to be a marathon fan. Uh, cool day in the city of Chicago. It was a nice weekend. Good weather for the race. Uh, overall, I think it was one of certainly one of the more memorable Chicago marathons ever, uh, if not the most memorable, given the, what happened on both the men's and women's side. Yes. How many Chicago marathons now? Have you been going there every year since you've been with Let's Run? I went for the first time in 2017, and then I covered 2018 and 2019. 2020 obviously canceled due to COVID, and then 2021 was the same weekend as Boston. So I was at Boston instead. I didn't go last year. So this was actually this was my fourth Chicago, but my first since 2019. Okay. You got to love travel with your job, Jonathan, going all over the map to these races. Um, what is it like with when we talk work-life balance or knowing that you're going to be on the road in the air in no time after getting back from a race and then you're back to it? Do you have that schedule kind of set ahead of time for the year? Do you know what it looks like going forward? There are some events I know I'm going to be at every year, like NCAA cross country, the U.S. Outdoor Championships, the World Championships or Olympics, that sort of stuff. And then there are some where we kind of decide later, like Chicago, I didn't go last year, so I wasn't sure if I was going to go. But then we kind of looked at who was in the field and we're like, all right, there are a lot of good runners. There's a lot of good Americans like we need someone there. So I think I booked my ticket for Chicago maybe a month beforehand. Uh, usually it's pretty nice though, in terms of like how the travel breaks down that I'll have a meet and then it'll be maybe three weeks or a month until the next one. Like I'm not traveling too much where it becomes a drag and I'm not looking forward to it though. I will say the last few weeks, there has been a lot of stuff in terms of world championships. And I was in Zurich for the diamond league and then came back and we had the diamond league final in the U S and then, Chicago Marathon. That's it's been the last couple of weeks. You know, I've been home since in between pre and Chicago, but that's been a fairly heavy travel load for me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I won't be going anywhere until the New York City Marathon next month, and that's kind of nice. But I, I'm not. I don't want to complain about getting to go to these cool places and see all this cool stuff. Like it's it's certainly one of the perks of the job. I do like traveling. It's one of the coolest things about uh, what I get to do. Yeah, that's awesome. Do you have a favorite discipline of running to spectate and to cover roads, cross country track? Probably the 1500. Yeah. Uh, that's just, it's the, we, I feel like we get the best storylines, at least on the men's side, the last couple of years with how the world championship finals have played out. And there's a nice, you, you can write about the stories, but you can also write about the strategy a lot. Like I, I enjoy writing about the hundred meters but the tactical element in the 100 doesn't really exist. You have to really focus more on the personalities and the backstory and that sort of thing. And then you can talk about the race a little bit. Whereas in the 1500, you can really dig in like, how did this person approach this race? What was their strategy? What went right? What went wrong? You can do that in the marathon as well. But the 1500, you're almost always guaranteed a close finish also. So between that, and some of the personalities we've had in the the event over the years, you know, Matthew Centrowitz, Jakob Ingebrigtsen, now Yard Nagus. Uh, that's probably the most fun event for me to write about. Yeah, I love it. 1,500 mile, my go-to events during my running career and following it closely now and all the characters we have going now, like you said, and the performances too in these times and these battles. It's been just ridiculous. So much fun, the 1,500 
your career in journalism, going to college, Dartmouth, correct? You yep. had an idea you wanted to get into sports media? Yes. Uh, you know, when I was growing up, I was a huge sports nut. And initially, I wanted to be a broadcaster, but I don't know if you can tell, I have a little bit of an accent. I was born in England. Uh, I moved to the U.S., when I was 10 years old and it's, it's always just kind of, I was like, it, I also had a strong, it was a stronger accent when I was younger, you know, more English than it is now. And I was just like, this probably doesn't sound like someone people are going to want to listen to call football games or, <laughs> you know, NFL games, anything like that. It's probably writing's probably how I'm going to do it. If I'm going to break into sports. So going to college, I was like, all right, I'm going to write for my school newspaper and I didn't really mind coming out. I didn't care what sport I ended up covering. You know, I knew a lot about running, but I also follow football, basketball, soccer, pretty in-depth. So I would have been happy with anything. But yeah, I did the school paper for four years at, in college and was lucky to get this internship with Let's Run out of college and been with them ever since. Cool. That's incredible with Let's Run ever since college internship then into full-time writing uh, how long what, was it a year internship out of college yeah it was actually i should say in between graduating dartmouth in 2013 and getting the internship in 2014 i did a one-year master's program at syracuse so that was in magazine newspaper and online journalism um and as part of the graduation requirements we needed to have an internship so i did that the summer of 2014 uh yes yeah, may june july august that was the internship and then full-time in september of 2014 okay in terms of the writing how have you seen your personal writing evolve over the years and do you remember some of your early pieces for let's run versus the confidence you have now almost 10 years in the challenges or maybe it clicked right away like how do you view your writing do you look back at any of the older pieces or compare just talk about how you've progressed as a writer since joining let's run yeah i think i wrote a fair amount of profiles early in my career for let's run uh, or longer features one was on colorado and mark wetmore another one was on flo groberg who was a soldier in afghanistan for the united states and ended up getting the medal of honor actually a year after and he was a runner in college and you know, talk, kind of talking about running and his service in the military. So I feel like the profiles I was always pretty good at, but what I've definitely become better at is just writing with authority about the sport because I've been in it longer. I know the personalities. I know the history. When I was writing in 2014 and 2015, there were a lot of people who I didn't know in the sport or I didn't know how things operated. And I was kind of learning and developing those relationships. And now I have so many more sources that I can talk to if I have questions and I have the history of covering the last 10 years and knowing what's happened in the past that I think that really informs my writing when I write about the sport, because I know how everything fits into the bigger picture and who's with what training group, what's this athletes, you know, there are a lot of athletes now in the sport that I've covered essentially their entire career from when they're in college or even high school for some of them till now. So that has really helped me just 
right with authority on these major events because I've been there and been to them before and know how to ask the right questions, that sort of thing. That's a remarkable answer. Thank you for that. Great insight. Those connection webs and you often hear it in the media landscape you just got to show up and put in the work and you're going to meet people and then athletes coaches are going to see your face at all these events and get to know you better and i guess feel more comfortable talking with you or the reputation you have who you work for that they see that you just show up and put in the work that's a level of respect you get to in the industry yeah, and there are some athletes you're never going to win over. I can't say I have the best relationship with every single athlete, but I think I'd like to think most of the athletes who I've covered them a while that I've been at a lot of these meets with them, there is a mutual respect there. They know I'm not out to screw them over. I'm just there to tell stories and get to the truth. And for those that appreciate it, I think you develop a rapport and you can kind of get a better understanding of where they're coming through and they can know either them or their agent, you know, kind of reach out like, oh, hey, I thought you wrote this, but this was like, this isn't true. Well, I think most, I'm trying to be pretty accurate with all my stories, mm-hmm. but they can say like, hey, there's a little context here or hey, here's something you should probably know or like, you know, I have an issue with this sort of thing. And if they want to reach out, they should, they can know that I'm available and I'm willing to listen to them. Uh, and it's not just, you know, me trying to decide on a narrative and writing it, that I, I want to hear from them and, want to tell the whole story in as complete way as I can. For sure. Do you ever have that where you actually go in and edit or you take it down because you did hear from someone like, hey, that's not true. Can you change that or remove that? Do you do you get that often with your work? I I think I've, I may have done it once or twice, but you really, before we publish something, we want to be like 100% on everything in this story is true. Yep. So uh, I, we're pretty careful about that in the vetting process, but... Yeah, if I if I hear from someone and they they come out and say, "Hey, this is really not true," or you know, I, I have a major issue with this, I'll listen. And if I kind of agree, like, "Oh, okay, I, I did make a mistake. I'm going to fix that and I add a correction." As a writer, you really don't want to do that. You don't want to have this thing at the bottom saying, "Hey, we had to correct this story because it's wrong." It hasn't happened to me all that often, but uh it does happen from time to time. And if you make a mistake, you kind of got to own it as a writer. But I really try to avoid that. Uh, try to avoid making the mistake in the first place by making sure you have all your facts straight. Yep. I've appreciated that about your work and your interviews of asking some hard hitting questions or something that you know is on our minds as fans and you want to hear more how they react. And you, you had a question for Rupp in the pre-race uh, media time about Salazar and how his ban is ending soon and would you consider um, going with him again as coach and he didn't say no he didn't say absolutely not he w- talked about personal relationship and whatever that looks like was there anything in that answer from Rupp that surprised you were you expecting like a sure answer from him yeah I wasn't sure what to expect honestly because I was talking to my boss Robert Johnson before this interview and he's like this is one thing i really want to know from rup like you got to ask him about salazar and i'm like oh man do i have to like i feel like every time i see him it's something about salazar like last time when i was in new york last year ahead of that i was talking about the safe sport band salazar was serving and you know i was like are we really going to get anything but then i'm like look no my job is to 
I work for my bosses, so I got to serve them. But also, it's to serve the reader and to ask them stuff. Like, not everyone, not every track fan gets to go in front of Galen Rupp with a microphone and talk to him. Mm. This is my job is to do that and to ask them the stuff that people want to know. So, yeah, I asked him about it, and I was kind of surprised he was willing to engage as much as he did. And he said, you know, I know you've seen the interview, but for people who haven't, he said he's happy with Mike Smith right now, but that he was looking forward to resuming his personal relationship with Salazar. I think they've been pretty limited contact the last few years because, you know, if Salazar is talking training with him, that could result in a ban for Galen Rupp. And I think he, he just thought it was safer not to have any contact. But it was interesting to me that he said, you know, we'd have to look into the regulations or whatever in terms of what's permissible because Salazar is still banned right now by Safe Sport for life but that doesn't preclude him really from coaching athletes that much because safe sport doesn't have all that much power so yeah i did find it interesting that he didn't totally rule out uh some sort of relationship in the future but he also said he's happy with mike smith and it wasn't something he really wanted to worry about going into chicago so yeah i don't think he i'd be i'd be a bit surprised if he ever starts being coached by Salazar again, mm-hmm. but they were very close for a long time uh, in terms of just personal relationship and being friendly and that sort of thing. It, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if Salazar returns to his life in that area. Another rep question from that interview about his form. He talked about how he just like hated watching himself run in the last couple of races. And we know his world champs didn't go great and did you i know we didn't have rup and mance and that group on the broadcast too much during the live stream during the broadcast did you see anything from his form that you noticed because he was really talking about how he's gonna look like a different runner yeah honestly i'm trying to remember seeing galen rup on the broadcast at (laughs) all i I really didn't see much of him i feel like i've just seen photos yeah. Yeah. Like, but by the time he was finishing the race, I was writing my world record story on Kiptum. I was like, <laughs> we got to get something up on the website about it. So I can't tell you how his form looked. I'm not, I'm not a great form expert anyway, but with what I saw on the broadcast, I really can't weigh in, I'm afraid. <laughs> All good. What advice would you have, Jonathan, for people who are aspiring to get into sports media or they're in college now or um, even in my case now, I'm in my 30s and still going with the podcast and thinking of ways to be involved in running media in sports journalism. What is What are some pieces of advice you'd give to people who are in college, in the major, looking to start something full-time at 22 years old or so and also just people in general who have all these creative outlets and different ways to get involved, um, kind of different parts of that question. What advice do you have people who want to break into this landscape? Yeah. First of all, you, you got to put in the work. You got to be doing, you know, if you're a writer, write articles. If you're podcasting, record podcasts. If you're doing video, you got to put together videos. Like when you do that, you will get better. First of all, the more work you do, but also, you will start developing relationships with sources and you'll, you'll be putting yourself out for the world to see. And it can be hard, like getting that foot in the door, getting that big break. But you also, you never know who's listening or watching or reading. So if the right person sees something you put out there, that 
can really help you moving forward. So that's one thing. And then I think you got to, I think being aggressive is not the right word for it, but you can't be afraid to kind of shoot your shot and like reach out to, you know, for in terms of like interviews or stories you want to cover, don't be afraid to ask because the worst someone can say is no, or the worst they can do is ignore you, you know? Uh, But if they say yes, hey, you've landed an exclusive interview with some huge star or you've got a credential with the local minor league baseball team or something like that, like look at those things and try to go after them and don't be afraid to get get rejected because that's going to happen when you're a pro as well. There are going to be people who just say, I don't want to talk to you. And there are going to be events that deny you a credential. That's just Mm -hmm. part of the the job, I'm afraid. So yeah, kind of get used to rejection, but also... Don't let that get you down from pursuing uh, things, you know, big big stories or that sort of thing. So those are a couple tips, but honestly, it's hard. Like there's no one easy path or no set advice in this industry. It's changing so much. It has changed so much that it's very competitive to get into. You really just work hard and then you have to hope that you get lucky and catch a break. I got lucky and caught a break with Let's Run and... I've been very fortunate to have the career I have, but I'm not around thinking that I'm this, you know, unique talent when it comes to journalism. I just happened to get a good break and I took advantage of it. I think that's what most of the people in our industry right now would say similar thing that they happened to get a break and they happened to take advantage of it, but it could have been a dozen other people in my situation. Great words. Appreciate that advice. And you're, at the top of the running journalism game, and I was thrilled to get a yes from you for this interview, Jonathan, to join me on Hooray Run Podcast. I'm trying to get it back going. been a little over a year since the last episode, and to hear back from you and to take this time, it really means a lot with your impact on the sport. And I want you to plug what you have going now with writing, with podcasts, where you'll be next. Yeah, letsrun.com. Just visit every day. We're going to have new running content for you. We're kind of shifting to cross country and we'll still have some full marathon stuff. But yeah, if you go on there, that's where my work shows up. We have a weekly podcast, let's run.com track talk podcast. We've also got a bonus podcast. If you join our supporters club, let's run.com slash subscribe. That gets you a bonus podcast every Friday. And next up for me, New York City Marathon on November 5th, and then one of my favorite meets every year, the NCAA Cross Country Championships in Virginia in the middle of November, and that's going to be it. I Usually, December is pretty quiet on the running calendar, yeah. so those are my last two meets this year. Wonderful. Well, I appreciate the insight and the time, Jonathan. Thank you so much for doing this. I would love to have you on again. That's- yeah. No, this was fun. Uh you know, let, let me know uh, when you want to talk and uh, hopefully we can make it happen. Sure. Oh, I got one more thing for you, Jonathan. I saw on okay. your Dartmouth page that you, in college, or was it high school, five bowls of cereal a day? Yeah, uh, I was a cereal <laughs> fiend. Like, that was just my go-to because I couldn't cook. So if I was hungry, I was like, all right, what can I do? I can just make myself a bowl of cereal. So that would be a few before before school. I'd have a couple when I get back from practice, and that's my refueling. And then if I needed like a late night snack or something, cereal. I'd go with the cereal. So I don't eat as many anymore. Um, kind of become more of a 
scone guy or a baked good guy with my coffee in the morning, but I still have cereal from time to time. I still, I'm, I'm, that love will never die. What was your go-to cereal high school? You know, I go, th- I'd rotate because if I ate the same thing for too long, I, uh, you know, I just get sick of it. But <laughs> I like cocoa pebbles. Uh, checks were good. Can't go wrong with cocoa krispies. I mean, it was like yep. high school. It was like kids cereal a lot of the time. Uh, but. Yeah, I don't know. Honey Bunches of Oats were good. Yeah. I, I didn't have like one favorite. It would just be whatever I enjoyed, whatever whatever I was feeling that month. Sure. You know? Well, there's the cereal report from Jonathan Galt. Thank you for that. Thanks again for the time, Jonathan, and hope to talk again soon. Of course, man. Thanks for having me. That's it for episode 33. Thanks to Jonathan. Read his work on letsrun.com. Follow him on social media. Thanks to one of my best friends and soon-to-be dad, Wilson Shaner, for the intro-outro beats from years ago. Resurrected them from the depths of Gmail, and I feel like they'll be around for a while with the pod. Thanks to Sportwatch for the support. Follow Hooray Run on Instagram, at Hooray Run. Email the show, hoorayrun at gmail.com. Tell a friend, recommend, leave a review. Just... Click five stars. That's your review. Don't even have to write anything in your review message section. Just click stars. Subscribe or follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your pods. 